morning, Twitter. I'm Stephanie McNeil. He's Saeed Jones. It's Tuesday, and Ooh. you are watching AM to DM. Okay, I would like to offer a special good morning to Al Roker. Here's why. Yesterday, a guy named Bruce, who has no photo in his Twitter avatar, tweeted this at the Today Show. Still not sure why Al Roker is doing weather reporting when he's not even a meteorologist. Hmm. Interesting, interesting take, Bruce. Al Roker replied, me either, but I'm still cashing the checks. Merry Christmas. Now that's a mood right there. I love Al Roker so much. Isn't it great? He's like, isn't it great? I'm scamming you all for the past 40 years, or however long he's been on the Today Show. It I feels just, that long. I mean, like, I mean, maybe three decades at this point. I mean, as certainly long as, as long I can, as I've been. Yeah, as long as I can remember. Yeah, certainly as long as I've been watching morning TV, right? Um, and I love it. Like Al Roker, like, he stirred that straw at the Olympics. You know, he's not afraid to clap back at like Meg and Kelly on that no, moment. That was he pretty did, yeah, recent. Yeah, yeah, he gave great. I love it, and he. He's just like, if you're feeling froggy, let's jump. I will talk about my paycheck, girl, and I will keep smiling. Because I'm Al Roker. I live for him. And he has so much money. Yeah. Do you have any favorite Twitter clapbacks, though? Because that's what it got me thinking So about. you, yeah, you asked me about this earlier this morning, so I was thinking about it while I was getting ready, and I have to go with Thank You Next from Ari. Mm. Obviously, not mm. the song, the original tweet that she sent to Pete Davidson. I didn't know. Yeah. Is it? Yeah, so she tweeted, thank you, next, and it kind of became a thing, and then she came out with the song, thank you, next. Her mind. Yeah. I love her. The more I learn about Ariana, the more I love. Yeah, I'm Shout sure she was her. already writing the song, but it was, it was a little Either way, though. I, lo I mean, it makes it fun. It makes me want to go back through all her tweets and see if I can find other, like, For sure. For tips. sure. Right. Well, let's take it to the timeline. Share some of your favorite Twitter clapbacks with us using the hashtag am to dm and if you want to clap back at us... All right, all right. Give but, us your best. But I'll come back too, girl. Yeah. You don't want it. If you want to take on Saeed, <laughs> go right ahead. <laughs> all right, well, let's get to the top stories of the day because we have a ton of news to cover. Here is a tweet from BuzzFeed News. A video posted on social media showing New York police officers attempting to rip a child from his mother's arms at a Brooklyn social service office, office has prompted calls for an investigation. New York City Council Speaker Corey Johnson tweeted the video, which has now been viewed almost 500,000 times on Facebook. Okay, fair warning, the video is disturbing, um, but we do believe it's important to see. Let's take a quick look. Yeah, it's really obviously hard. it's hard to watch. Yeah. It was all over. It was on Facebook. It made it way to Twitter, all of their social media sites. This morning, Mark Elliott tweeted, according to the Rikers inmate lookup website, this mom, whose name is Jasmine Headley, is still in jail this morning, four days since she was arrested for endangering her child and obstructing government administration. And we, in our meeting before the show, looked it up on the Rikers inmate website again. And as of about an hour ago, she is still in custody. She's still in custody and away from her child. Uh, this story, of course, has raised a lot of questions for the city of New York, uh, the NYPD, and of course, Mayor Bill de Blasio himself. Errol Lewis, the host of NY1's uh, Inside City Hall, joins us now to talk about it. We have so many questions. Earl, good morning. Good to be with you. Thank you for joining us. I'm so glad. I've been your your Twitter feed's been very helpful because you have really been following this and helping people stay abreast. Uh, what do we know about how this confrontation happened in the first place? What we know so far is that uh, Jasmine Headley went down to social services. 
to try to restore a benefit. I believe it was assistance with childcare, as a matter of fact, that had been cut off. And th these, these things can happen for a lot of different reasons, whether it's eligibility or some other kind of problem. She brought the child with her because she had nobody else to take care of the child. In fact, that was kind of the whole point. Uh, she waited for hours and hours, and at least a couple of reported accounts have her sitting on the floor because there was no place else to sit uh, as she's waiting for hours and hours. Private security told her to get off the floor. She got into it with private security. They called the cops, and I think that takes us up to the time where that video starts. Wow. It's so confusing for all of us to watch. I mean, first of all, I, do we know why she was called call the cops on for sitting on the floor, which seems to be not something that police officers should need to break up? And the charges against her seem very strong, particularly endangering her child. Do we have any idea what the justification for that is? An order of protection, in fact, was entered by the Brooklyn District Attorney so that she cannot see her child. There's a lot of talk about, hey, get her out of Rikers Island, get, out, get her out of jail. Even if you were to do that, it's not clear whether legally she'd be able to see her own child. Um, this is, as far as I can tell, an example of multiple machinery uh, of government, multiple parts of the machinery of government chewing up somebody that it's supposed to be helping. The cops are supposed to be there to help you. Social services are supposed to be there to help you. The district attorney is supposed to be there for justice, not just for you know blindly passing paperwork along. And everybody uh, seems to have lost all sight of what the real mission is here. And I'd add that includes some of the politicians who have literally run from cameras rather than simply stand up and explain what the hell happened here. And let's talk about one of those politicians, Bill de Blasio. In May of this year, this is what he said about child separation at the border. Quote, there is nothing more barbaric than separating children from their parents. There was no excuse for this horror and certainly no reason. That's what he said in May. Uh, just yesterday, uh, he hosted an event celebrating the 25th anniversary of the city's police oversight board, the Civilian Complaint Reviewed Board. So I just find all of this like a, a stunning kind of constellation of details given it seems like he hasn't had very much to say about Jeslin, Jasmine Headley's case. Well, in fact, at that uh, 25th anniversary to commemorate the founding of the Civilian Complaint Review Board, it was supposed to be open press. Reporters asked him over and over and over again, and he simply walked away from the press rather than issue a statement. I think his first statement came about five o'clock yesterday. So that was a full 24 hours uh, after his, the first press inquiries about it. And uh, the incident, of course, happened on Friday. So it happens on Friday. Inquiries go out on Sunday. Monday, the mayor walks away from the press and still has not had a press conference or any kind of comprehensive statement about what's going on here. Wow. Well, we're definitely going to be keeping an eye on this story. And obviously, outlets like New York One, who do this important local reporting that bring these issues to the forefront of our social media feed. So thank you so much, Errol. Thank you. Thank you. Here's a tweet from BuzzFeed News reporter Blake Montgomery. The mother of Heather Hayer just read her victim impact statement at James Field's sentencing. She said, Heather was full of love, justice, and fairness. Mr. Fields tried to silence her. I refuse to allow that. I'm the type of mom where if you mess with my kid on the playground, it's on. It's on. Well, Blake Montgomery has been in the courtroom throughout the trial. He joins us now from Virginia. Blake, good morning. Morning, guys. How you doing? Uh, we are doing well. Okay, so can you describe the mood in the courtroom when Heather Heyer's mom, Susan, spoke? Yeah, it's actually Heather Heyer, just oh, going you. forward. Um, 
the mood in the courtroom, it was silent. Everyone wanted to hear what Susan Bro had to say. That quote is actually a little moment where people were laughing a little bit, but for the most part, everyone was quietly crying. Like there are a lot of victims of the car attack from last year in Charlottesville who were there watching the proceedings and they all gave testimony. Heather Heyer's mom gave testimony and it was just this really emotional catharsis where they finally got to speak about their trauma that they've experienced like that day and in the ensuing year and a half. It was really intense. I was also crying. Yeah, I bet it was very intense to be a part of. What is the next step here? I know he has yet to be sentenced. Do we have any idea how much time he is facing? He's facing a minimum of 136 years in prison. It that he's been convicted of 10 counts of really, really serious crimes, first degree murder, aggravated malicious wounding. Those all care, those carry up to life in prison, at, like each to their own. So it's really a question of whether his sentence will be served consecutively or concurrently, mm. um, like if he serves all those sentences at once, legally speaking. Mm. Right. Well, he's certainly not going to be getting out of prison, it looks like, for the rest of his life. Yeah. He'll be sentenced probably today. Right, right. Well, I want to highlight a tweet from your editor, Jason Wells, who was talking about another story you wrote about this case. You quoted someone saying, why would I want to go to the trial of a fucking murderer? I'm out here by the pool. How the alt-right ditched its white supremacist brother in his trial for murdering Heather Heyer at the Unite the Right rally. This was a really, really, really interesting story to me. Can you go into the, your story a little bit about how this murderer, James Fields, was abandoned by the cause he proclaimed to support? Yeah, so last year at the Unite the Right rally, there was this list of like prominent white nationalists who were supposed to speak, and none of them have showed up for this trial, even though James Fields, the convicted murderer, showed up to see them talk and hear them hear what they had to say. And they've said things like his trial is a miscarriage of justice. It's a kangaroo court, all sorts of whatever. They've promoted a fair number of conspiracy theories that have no basis in fact, but they've advised their supporters like not to go, told everyone to stay away from the trial. And they've lost a lot of ground in the past year. They aren't really, there's, not really much of a public-facing alt-right movement at this point that commands any like real public space. And so they think associating with this guy will further degrade any power that they still might have. Fascinating. Well, as always, Blake, thanks for joining us this morning. Thanks for having me. Here's a tweet from Time Magazine, The Guardians, Jamal Khashoggi, The Capital Gazette, Maria Ressa, Walone, and Joe Su'u, our Times Person of the Year 2018. Paul Moakley, the photo editor for Time Magazine, joins us now to talk about this year's choice. Uh, Paul, good morning. Good morning, everyone. All right, so Time Magazine released four different covers highlighting, of course, Jamal Khashoggi and other imperiled journalists. Uh, please tell us about them. Sure. Um, just this year, thus far, 52 journalists have been killed so far. Um, and we really wanted to focus the issue this year on people who are risking everything to bring us the news and just, you know, tell us the truth. Yeah. So why do you think this year, obviously, there's a huge issue right now with the fake news stuff coming out and all of this anti-journalism rhetoric. Are you guys trying to combat that rhetoric? 
Yes, I think that is definitely part of it. I think one of the themes of this year that we've looked at on some of our covers is sort of the, the crumbling of, of democratic ideals around the world and, and how those have been under threat. And free speech is such an essential part of that. Such an essential part of that. Um, we have a tweet here from Twan Targaryen, uh, and it's pretty interesting. It notes, uh, it's absolutely astounding how Time Magazine went from Trump in 2016 as Person of the Year to the Me Too movement uh, in 2017 to murdered journalists in 2018. Uh, there's a not-too-subtle irony present, is what that person said. Uh, what do you make of that point, uh, given Trump's rhetoric on journalists? Well, that's one of the things about person of the year. It's it's neither for good or bad. It's the person who really drives the news of the year and is going to push it forward in the year to come. So that is, is part of the reason for the mix of, um, you know, of our, our cover subjects. Hmm. So you have interviews with many of these journalists who are still alive talking about the things that they have experienced and the impression they have faced. Did any of them stick out to you? Do you have an example of maybe someone we in the U.S. haven't heard as much about? Yeah, I would say one of the most moving stories I heard and during an interview that I did with um, a Sudanese journalist, Amal, um, she spoke about being in prison this year and being tortured for almost a month. And one of the things that I'll never get out of my head is her describing her actual torture and imprisonment with all these other journalists and women. And just saying that since that moment, she's felt like she's been in a waking dream that she hasn't been able to break out of. And it's it's a nightmare that I, I kind of can't get out of my head and and just think about that's that's sort of what's at stake here in this for 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 journalists this year. Well, you guys did really good interviews with all of these journalists talking about their experiences. I would encourage anyone who's interested in this topic to read all about them. Thank you so much, Paul. Thank you very much. All right, later this morning, I'm sitting down for a conversation with Nick Cannon. Should be interesting. Up next, it's time for Fire Tweets. into these tweets, girl. Welcome back. All right, you ready for tweets? Let's do it. Let's do it. I still love that thing. It makes me so excited every time I see it like pop into my face. <laughs> Derek, you tweeted, why the fuck is Netflix so loud for when you open it? Okay, I'm going to do my best Netflix. Da -dum. <laughs> that, I don't, that was I don't know if that, that was. was good. I don't know. Okay, like chill. I'm just here to watch The Office again. It is. It is pretty dramatic. Yeah, I feel like it's, I feel like it goes well if you're watching like, like I've been watching The Center. Okay. You know, you've seen the center. Oh, like something really dramatic. Yeah, so if, like when you're watching this, it's like, da-da. Yeah. But like, otherwise. I'm like, girl, I'm just here to watch Shit's Creek. I don't need all that <laughs> Yeah. This next tweet comes from Not A Wolf. Ah, yes, the bad year is nearly over. I said foolishly for the fourth year in a row, unaware of what fresh horrors 2019 would bring. Oh, dear. I love Not A Wolf. <sighs> I'm going to make a 2018 effigy. Burn <laughs> to it. burn on New Year's Eve. Hey, I think I'm going to go to Mexico City. So I just like, I want to be on a rooftop somewhere in Mexico City. Yeah. Just, <sighs> maybe but 2019 will be better. Maybe. I, th I hope so, right? I, I don't know. You gotta, you gotta keep the faith in, yes. in these times. You gotta That's keep right. the faith. Stay positive. Exactly. Josh Hart, Chipotle definitely tastes better with a plastic fork than a metal fork. Don't at me. 
Is it because you know you don't have to wash anything when you're like eating it out of the thing? I think it's because you're, you, you know, you're already eating like the culinary version of plastic, so why not use plastic to eat? Wow. That's, I don't like, how many like words. salmonella outbreaks do y'all need to stop eating at Chipotle? Okay, think about Chipotle and the salmonella outbreaks. I don't okay. want to go into too long of a tangent here, but like the salmonella outbreak is because the food is so fresh. Like, would you rather have it be like so processed that salmonella can't get in it? No, seriously, that's, that, isn't that right? It's cause like their distributors are like, I don't know. <laughs> I just, I mean, you know, you do you. I feel bad for Chipotle. You, you feel bad for, I think they'll be okay. Aren't they owned by McDonald's? Oh, okay. really? Well, no, all right. <sighs> Chipotle truthers. Okay, this next tweet is from Nathan. Me, it's not that I mind freelancing, I love it. It's just that the social interaction is pretty minimal and extremely uneven day to day. And sometimes I wonder how that will affect me in the long term, you know? Barista. Okay, are you going to order? <laughs> I didn't realize when we read this earlier that this is from Nathan, who used to work oh with God. us. Oh, we love and Nathan. I, I, did, I did know, like I heard on the grapevine that he is now no longer with us. Um, Nathan is one of the nicest people in the city So nice. My could, God. Nathan, you could always come into the BuzzFeed offices and uh -huh. talk to us. That's true. To That's someone. true. And I don't even fuck with nice people like that, but Nathan is just, <laughs> he makes me like, okay, be nice. <laughs> All right, this is from Capes. I love this one. My sister has positioned herself as the lazy sibling, and honestly, I stand. No one expects anything from her. Is it too late for me to rebrand? Yeah, so I have this video, it was really funny, and I sent it to, like, we have this family group chat, okay. and my dad responded, too late for me. It's oh. too late for me to rebrand. Well, yeah, I mean, I think after the age of, like, 12, it's yeah. the brand's locked I mean, in. We're the, you're the oldest child, and you only have brothers. I mean, you basically end up doing everyone's shit all of the time. Yeah. I'm branded as the the bougie cousin. I don't <laughs> I don't know where that comes from. It's so weird. Anyway, tweet of the day comes from K. You ready? Yeah. Literally, my favorite thing to do is pretend I cannot hear people when my headphones are in. My close second favorite is pretending to be asleep. Mm. K, first of all, girl, how dare you tell people about the headphone trick? Don't tell. Shh. I feel like everyone what? knows that. No, it's fine. It's fine. Like they. Can't hear them. Yeah, I don't know. Just keep walking. I don't know. Just keep walking. I like to pretend to be asleep, but usually I actually am asleep all the time. <laughs> I'm constantly asleep. Sleep right. Now. I could sleep literally right here, right now. Okay. All right. Later in the show, Sayid sits down with Nick Cannon. But up next, we're going live from the district. Welcome back. We're going live from the district with BuzzFeed News politics reporter Lisandra Villa. Good morning, Lisa. Good morning, how are you? Good, Pretty good, good. Lisa. how good are you to doing? See All right, doing well, well, thanks. Cool. Uh, here's a tweet from the National Journal's Zach Cohen. Trump, Pence, Schumer, and Pelosi, what a great group of people, are meeting today as Congress faces a December 21st deadline to fund DHS and other agencies. Trump and Democratic leadership are billions of dollars apart on border security funding. So Lisa, what do you think will be at the top of their minds during their meeting today? Yeah, so we have a quarter of the federal government that is still waiting to see how it's going to be funded beyond this December 21st deadline. Um, and this is just like the, the thing with lawmakers is that they love pushing things off to the last minute. And the thing that is the top item that needs to get figured out between Republicans and Democrats right now is uh, border security money. And again, for, for Democrats, I've said this before, but for Democrats, that's border security money. And then for Republicans, that's 
Trump's border wall money. So that's what we'll be looking to hear about. So pretty big divide there on those two things. Do you think Pelosi has any more leverage now that we have a Democratic House or not really? At this point, Democrats are saying, hey, Republicans are still in charge of the House and Senate and White House, and this deadline is before the new Congress. So they're kind of trying to push off the responsibility on Republicans. But if for some reason this does happen to go into the new year, then sure, um, de Democrats will be in control of the House and they will have more, more uh, power. So it just sort of depends on whatever deal they come up with. Um, but at this point, even the Freedom Caucus is saying this is our moment to try to get immigration and, and the border wall figured out um, because, because we, we have control. So that's kind of where we are. Interesting. So everyone has a reason to either delay or to rush it through right now. Um, well, I also wanted to ask about Chuck Schumer. He, of course, has gotten a lot of criticism from the left for making deals that people argue are not in the interest of the Democratic Party. Uh, how is he responding to that? Yeah, so Schumer is is coming up against that problem that I ju that I just went through, which is that Democrats see this as border security money, and Schumer is saying, "Okay, I'm okay with spending some money on border security. That's fine." But if the political um, fallout from that is that Republicans get to say this is border wall money. So there, there's sort of some internal battles in the Democratic Party where some Democrats, in particular from the House, are saying, no, we shouldn't be spending on border, border security if, if this translates into border wall money for Republicans. So that's what he's dealing with right now. Right. Makes sense. Well, I want to move on now to a treat from Trini Party. A former White House official on Trump's chief of staff selection. The results will always be the same. The only thing that might be different is the length of the honeymoon afforded to the new chief of staff. Yeah, so Tarini had a really great piece yesterday about Trump's new chief of staff, and her kind of point was that doesn't really matter. Why do you think, what was her point, and what should our expectations here be? Yeah, so the point is that, so we're in America's search for the next White House chief of staff, right? Um, and the point is sort of that it doesn't really matter who fills that position because Trump doesn't really empower the position. Trump is going to be Trump. Um, and so whoever's there is kind of just the filler person, but not really reining anybody in at that point. Can I ask then, um, why do we care at all? If, if, <laughs> if, if we feel this way, why is there such a continued discussion about chief of staff? I mean, we are talking about it. I mean, in any normal administration, this is a huge deal, but there is a lot of turnover in the White House. Um, and so it's just kind of keeping tabs. Who has access to Trump? What is their, their technique to dealing um, with the, the daily chaos of the White House? So I, I, we care because it, that's who, who has the president's ear in theory. But like I said, who, who really has control of Donald Trump? Right. Who has control of Donald Trump? Excellent question, Lisa. Um, well, as always, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. See you guys later. All right, later. All right, friends, up next, I sit down with Nick Cannon. Stay tuned. This is The Sit Down, and I'm here with host, producer, actor, and comedian Nick Cannon. How are you doing yes, this Yes, how are you? What's going on, my good bro? Good to see you. Good, good? to see you. 
Um, so you've hosted so many shows. I feel like you're a staple and a lot of people think of TV. We've got America's I'll Got take Talent, <laughs> Wild and Out. Um, I'm interested in your new show, Singing Competition, The Masked Singer. Yeah, what, yeah. what got you into this idea? Man, it's pretty crazy. It, yeah, it's actually, I don't like to just host boring stuff. Mm -hmm. And that's the thing, like even you after- You want a twist. Yeah, yeah, like after America's Got Talent, I was like, man, I don't need to host anything anymore. And then I saw this concept and I was like, yo, I love this. this okay. This seems utterly ridiculous. So I'm <laughs> all in. And uh, it was just a lot of fun, man. So I was like, you know what? It, it was a global phenomenon, uh, you know, in some other territories. So I was like, this needs to be in America. And, you know, I'm the co-executive producer and the host. So I was like, let me present it to my people here. Okay. Yeah. I'm interested to see how it works out because it's a crazy concept. It's such a crazy concept <laughs> just based off of the idea that it's A-list celebrities in, you know, head-to-toe costumes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, not that, just a mask. It's yeah, like a nah, full-on, full on someone costume. as a bird. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and uh, it's a lot of fun just based off of just watching people uh, really just do like the most crazy performance they've probably ever done in their lives. Seems like it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That comes out in January. You're January also adding, yep. yeah, you're also adding late night television host. Yeah, man. Uh, doing a show for Fox, which is cool because it's like, you know, it's a lineup of just like, we've got enough white. Yeah, that was, there's a bunch, it's enough people named <laughs> James or Jimmy uh, in late night. I'm, I'm trying to uh, add some melanin and some swag into yeah. that space. So, so what are you most excited about being in the late night space? Uh, Really just being myself, man. Being uh, somebody who's unapologetic, somebody who uh, is outspoken, but at the same time, you know, welcoming, fun-loving, and, and I think, you know, I've kind of been preparing my entire career to mm -hmm. be in a space like this, because everybody knows, you know, uh, I, I love people, I love uh, interviewing, I love entertaining, so, you know, and that's usually a space where you get to do all of that. Yeah, in a way, it's almost kind of crazy that it's taken this long to, because it's yeah, like, yeah. Yeah, yeah, like, and I mean, obviously, I've, I've been busy doing a few other things. A few, <laughs> other, a few other projects. Yeah, yeah, but I, I mean, you know, I, I feel like being able to bring that, that energy to the late night space, but still, you know, I, I've always looked up to people like Oprah and, and uh, Ellen you know, mm -hmm. and the people who I felt like, you know, they were, may not be in late night, but they've uh, commanded an audience right. in, in their time slot in such mm -hmm. a way. I was like, that needs to be done in, in, in night television. Absolutely. I'd yeah. love to see it. Love to see thank it. Thank you. Thank you. Well, you know, of course, after Kevin Hart uh, dropped out of hosting the Oscars, yeah. following everything, both his tweets and, yeah. and the debate over apologizing, uh, you, you know, started tweeting, um, you know, to <laughs> expose uh, homophobic tweets uh, from yeah. people like Chelsea Handler, uh, Sarah Silverman, Amy Schumer, yeah. I call them the pale witches. Uh, <laughs> and I want to make that clear. I want to make it clear. It's not like I'm a huge fan of, of the three of them. Um, but I was curious that that yeah. was your response. So, so why did you feel the need to do that? Uh, a few reasons. I mean, one, I was sticking up with my best friend. You okay, know? so you and Kevin are very close. <laughs> yeah. So and, is that part of this? Uh, part, of course, that's the main part. And only, and you know, I like to point out selective outrage and hypocrisy, but Mainly talking to that man, I was so proud of him and I knew how important that job was to him. Mm -hmm. And then I was even more proud the way that he handled it once all of the controversy came his way and he chose to step down, then apologize. Mm -hmm. And uh, the only reason why I pointed out some of the other people, and I could have kept going. Mm -hmm. I mean, I did my, I did extensive research, and you yeah, know, you don't it, have to. I mean, yeah, 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 you don't yeah, have to look far to yeah, find yeah, homophobic yeah. tweets. And, and it was just, and it was just showing how we all grow. And even more than that, it was more like I was like, 
wow, we can invite Mel Gibson to the Oscars, mm-hmm. but Kevin can't come. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, like, what would you say to people, though, who feel that, yes, Chelsea Handler, Sarah Silverman, uh, Mel Gibson, you yeah. know, praised by <laughs> yeah. the Academy, but that, that does not absolve uh, Kevin from his own behavior? Uh, when we talk about Kevin's behavior, and I think this is the thing where we have to be very careful because it's a dangerous time where we just allow social media to dictate how we feel about people's character. Okay. I know Kevin Hart personally. Mm-hmm. I know Kevin Hart is an amazing individual. Mm-hmm. Is has uh, one of the kindest and most generous spirits I've ever seen out of anyone in the entertainment industry. And for the one of the good guys to get uh, kind of hung out to dry is truly unfair, mm-hmm. uh, especially when he's been remorseful, when he said he's sorry. Uh, and then we got to ask ourselves, what does sorry actually mean? Because sorry, when you think about it, is a selfish statement uh, based off of we sh- if we're really looking for someone's character to see if he's grown, if he's grown from making statements that cause pain uh, to uh, to people, then look at his character. Mm-hmm. And if we're if we're putting his character on trial here, I think it, it stands the test of time. And so do when we look at the character of the people that I retweeted. Mm-hmm. They I salute respect their work as artists and think that they have done some great things. And even when you look at myself, you know what I mean. I've been an advocate and a, and a friend to the LGBTQ community for so many different times, you know, from my philanthropic work to even what we do at Wild and Out, you know, which I believe is the most progressive show on television because we welcome everyone and we offend everyone. <laughs> uh, uh, but I say that to say at times when we look like it, it's it's a little reminiscent of McCarthyism when you think about uh, at, at times like this where everyone's just scared to move, scared to speak. And I'm not. I'm, 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 I'm very unafraid. I'm very uh, fearless when it comes to this. Do you think comedians like Kevin Hart are more scared than LGBT people or trans uh, people? I think, uh, I, don't, I wouldn't say that they're, no, nah, nah, not at all. I, I would say that, like, when and I'm only speaking for Kevin because he's not here. I believe he's someone, in, in his act, he speaks openly, freely, because he and I are both... Uh, from the schools of the Richard Pryors, of the George Carlins, of of the Robin Williams, these people that were allowed to say whatever they wanted to say because the job of a comedian is to hold the mirror up to society and say, look. Uh, and uh, I believe all those people I retweeted have done that in the past. I believe Kevin has done that. I believe I, I do that. What I believe, though, is that we have to be very careful with our power because we all come from communities that have experienced great pain. Sure. And we, when we start to compare our pain, mm-hmm. that's the wrong thing. Mm-hmm. We're just doing it for a victory. We're looking for progress here. Mm-hmm. And uh, I believe that this conversation needs to be had. And but I needed I, I need this conversation to happen on a, an open base where no one's afraid to say how they ultimately feel, so we can grow from these experiences, opposed to talking about it in quiet, talking about it in in our private sectors, and then we come and we, and then we want to be politically correct. Mm. That's my problem. Okay. I'm pro- I have a problem with the the politically correct aspect. Yeah. I, I have a problem with the term politically right. correct. And you tweeted about this. Yeah, you tweeted about I'm, this yeah. just this week or last week. You yeah. said uh, I've been known. I know you know I've been saying fucked up. Since Twitter started, <laughs> uh, don't play that co- politically correct bullshit. Fuck politics, only truth. All day. But yes. in 2012, you tweeted this. Um, wow. If your best jokes include gay or faggot, you should get kicked off Twitter. This isn't the third grade. Not an insult. Lack of creativity. I'm Absolute, having a little no, trouble. I believe both of those things. How are we? But how are we squaring the two of those? I, because you're saying they're like 
people should get kicked off Twitter. Should and Kevin Hart get kicked because, off? One, because I'm saying, if, look at the statement though. I said, if that's your best joke, mm-hmm. if you're, if you're, if you're ultimately out here to hurt people mm-hmm. and to be mean and to be disgusting and mm-hmm. hateful, absolutely do away mm-hmm. with you. Now, if you just choose to, to use ignorant terms, mm-hmm. then that's your own ignorance. Mm-hmm. And that's what, that's what both of those statements were, uh, I truly believe in everything that I said because it's like, yo, yeah, if you're just a disgusting person, mm-hmm. then yeah, then uh, okay, let's do it. But you should know the difference between someone who's being hateful mm-hmm. and someone who is just doing something out of satire, even out of ignorance. It's like, okay, yeah, let's 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 allow that person to grow. We've all been to comedy shows where like, man, that person, he mm-hmm. he definitely crossed the line. And that's mm-hmm. when I say a lot of comedians don't know they crossed the line until they've mm-hmm. crossed the line. Mm-hmm. And we'll deal with that accordingly. But when you just looking where society has this issue with the, this fascination with punishment. Mm-hmm. Opposed to like, oh let's let's give them a punishment. Opposed to like, no, let's grow. Let's let's come to a common place of mm-hmm. understanding as humanity. So, so, so following what you're saying, yeah, yeah. it sounds like you're saying if, the, the old tweets yeah, from right. Kevin Hart, that totally. that's in the category of ignorance, Yes, and he's not in that place anymore. He's grown, as we have all grown. grown. And, then it, and this is the point. Has he done things with LGBT people since then? Yes, absolutely he has. I mean, if you watch, if you watch Real Husbands uh, of Hollywood, it's, so, it's funny how art can imi- imitate life and, and, and vice versa. We did an entire episode uh, uh, about this exact subject where we attacked it head on with satire uh, and and it's so interesting that at this point, you know, this and this wasn't 2010, this was, you know, a few years ago, mm-hmm. but we still dealt, dealt with it in a way where you don't want to get caught up in these ideas where it's just all about who's right. Mm-hmm. Let's focus on what's right. Mm-hmm. And if and I hold the academy accountable in that sense because if we're going to bring up someone's past and force them uh, because of your power, you want to force someone to apologize, not ask them if they should or not. You want to force them to in order mm-hmm. to keep their job. Let's because like, it wasn't ultimate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because that that's let's you know that's where we truly have issues when this thing of control or where you want to force someone to, then I believe we should force the academy to apologize how they've treated several communities. Let's go all the way back to Hattie McDaniels, the first black woman to ever receive an academy award. And she was forced to sit in the back and be segregated from the rest of the Gone with the Wind cast. Did we receive an apology from that academy? Or if you want to talk about the, you know, just as 2005 or a little, you know, during the time with the, the tweets that are uh, 2015, actually, mm-hmm. or in before where, you know, they wanted Kevin to apologize for mm-hmm. the 6000 voting members were all male, 100 percent male and 95 percent white. Mm-hmm. But we've allowed the academy to grow mm-hmm. since then. And we said uh, we did the Oscars so white, all of those things. Mm-hmm. And that was just a couple of years ago. But we're allowing them to grow. We didn't force them to apologize for those things. So I feel like if we're going to start bringing up people's past and saying that, oh, you made an ignorant statement Mm -hmm. or a statement that was careless years ago, Mm -hmm. then so has the Academy. And and, but still, we want to overlook the ideas of the Mel Gibsons and all these other things that that and we and we hold the Academy in such this this high regard. But, you know, there's still the individuals who have all probably made statements and supported statements that we wouldn't we would look down upon. Well, you know, and, and to, to put a button, I, I would like to believe that we could do both. Personal I would hope so. And systemic, yeah, but, yeah okay, I would hope I, so. I, hear what you're saying. I do want to ask, it is the holidays. 
It is the holidays. On a lighter be, note. I would be remiss. <laughs> I would be remiss not to ask about Mariah. Hey, I, I the, love hearing the how queen you, of Christmas. The, the queen of Christmas. What is it like co-parenting with the with queen of MC, Christmas during the holidays? With Christmas, it's, it's, I, I get the short end of the stick. <laughs> I'm so not cool when it comes to the holidays to my kids because mommy does it You're not all. helping the kids harmonize on all I want for Christmas? That's that's all. My, mommy got Christmas on lock. I, I just go, I'm going to go ahead and pick a whole nother holiday okay. <laughs> because she brings out the elves, the reindeer, Santa showing up, <laughs> snow. It's, a, it's, it's, I don't, I can't compete. That's fair. Yeah, Pick yeah. Battles. Absolutely. Well, Nick, thank you so much for joining us. Such a pleasure. And man. for the conversation. Oh, no, thank you, you know, for the conversation. I'm glad we could do it. It's this. healthy. It's healthy. Absolutely. It All right, friends, you can, of course, watch Nick Hannon hosting The Masked Singer. It premieres January 2nd on Fox. Moe into DM is up next. Stay tuned. Thanks. Vanderpump Rules is in its seventh season, and we are watching the cast of waitresses and bartenders turn into business owners and, of course, influencers, who still sometimes wait tables. Uh, I don't know. Maybe. We're not sure. Freelance writer Zan Romanoff joins me now to discuss this team and their budding empires. Hey, Zan, how is it going? Uh, I'm good. How are you doing? Pretty good. So you wrote this piece for Vox, and the title was why the cast of Vanderpump Rules will sell you anything. Okay, so let's do like a very quick synopsis of this show for any of our viewers who do not watch Vanderpump. Yeah, um, so Lisa Vanderpump is one of the original Real Housewives of Beverly Hills. Um, after a couple seasons of that show, she was like, you know, I'm getting a lot of airtime, but my restaurants are not. Um, and so she proposed a spinoff to Bravo that would focus on the waitresses and waiters at one of her restaurants called Sir. Um, and so that is Vanderpump Rules. It's about this group of sort of then mostly 20-something, uh, you know, Hollywood wannabes who are now uh, quite famous, actually. Yeah, it's so interesting because I actually started watching the first season, you know, after hearing about it for so long. And these people are all very famous now. But back in the day, they were kind of like Hollywood wannabes, people trying to be actors and models and singers who were waiting tables and struggling. But are any of them actually still waiting tables? They're not struggling, right? Uh, they are almost certainly not struggling. I can't, you know, I haven't seen anyone's bank account. Um, but if you look at the amount of social media followers that they have and the kind of sponsored content deals they're doing alone, um, suggests that they're probably doing okay on that front. They're definitely getting paid pretty well per episode for the show. Um, those first couple of seasons, they were getting, I think, in the neighborhood of $30,000 for, you know, 11 or 12 episodes. And now they're getting probably that per episode. Um, so yeah, so they're they're both making money, you know, because of the show directly, uh, and then they're doing all these sort of other side projects. Um, so they have to like come in and and do what they. And they were recently profiled by Vogue, and they described their jobs as kind of hostessing. So they'll come in and um, you know be there and be seen by fans, but yeah, they're not like taking drink orders. That's not really their jobs anymore. Yeah, they're not like balancing the the drinks and stuff. Like they <laughs> the tray. Yeah. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, that's a little fast that now. Well, you spoke with Kristen Doty and Lala Kent. So what did, do you consider them business women? Are they influencers? I know they kind of didn't like that term, right? Yeah, Doty very uh, specifically said, she was like, do not call me an influencer. That's not what I do. Like, that's not a job. I have a job. Um, and so she is, she is designing t-shirts um, for a line called James May. Um, Lala Kent is, has a line called Give Them Lala Beauty, and she's also acting a bunch. And, you know, I've been thinking about this a lot, and it's, it's a sort of a hard line to draw, because I think actually, like, influencers in a certain way are business people, right? They recognize they have a lucrative brand, and they're selling it. Um, 
So, I mean, they certainly, you know, Lala and, and Kristen Doty and all these women, I think, qualify as businesswomen. Um, you know, but it sort of depends on how, you know, what kind of, but, and, and so they are both in the business of influencing um, and also in other businesses as well. I think, I think they're trying to move beyond um, just being, or quote unquote, just being influencers. You know, that, that to them feels like a pejorative term. Yeah, I think it is kind of a pejorative term. I think people don't really enjoy call, hearing them <laughs> called influencers. Well, you compare them to the Kardashians, who are kind of the original influencers slash business people. How do you think this crew is different than the Queens, the Kardashians? Um, so something that I write about in the piece is that the Kardashians have a lot of control over their image. And it's funny because you think about the Kardashians, right? It's not, they're like, they talk about all kinds of, you know, bodily stuff. And they're very honest about pregnancy and childbirth. Um, so they're not traditionally uh, sort of glamorous and removed, but they still do work pretty hard to give us a sense of themselves as these sort of like naturally perfect, like hashtag goals people. Um, you know, this sort of woke up like this aesthetic, whereas the cast of Vanderpump Rules is not doing that. Like the cast of Vanderpump Rules is like bringing the reality TV cameras in to like have, you know, their nose jobs done, their boob jobs done. They're like, you know, <laughs> my body is my job. Um, and they're much more honest in certain ways about sort of the work that they're doing to, um, to look the way that they do and to have the life that they do. Uh, so there's definitely like a, I don't want to say authenticity, that's the wrong word. Um, but there's just less of a gloss. There's less of a sheen, I would say, on the Vanderpump cast, um, which is sort of one of the things they're selling is like, listen, this is not about trying to be hashtag gold. This is about like getting drunk with your girlfriends, you know, putting on a bold lip and going out. I loved the, your term, the uh, I woke up like this aesthetic. I definitely do not have that. So I guess I identify more with them. Well, Zan, thank you so <laughs> much too. for joining me today. And Twitter, we want to hear from you. If you had to go into business with anyone from Vanderpump Rules, who would it be? Let us know using the hashtag ANCDM. Up next, I'm talking to Abby Hagleg about to pull back the curtain on the culture of NBA dancers. Yesterday from Abby Haglidge, Haglidge, sorry. In May, I wrote NBA dancers on a post-it note seven months and 30 interviews later. Here is what I found. A decades-long culture of brainwashing, unfair pay, and eating disorders. Abby joins me now. Abby, so sorry for butchering your name. No problem. Your piece was so good. I'm so glad you're here to talk to me about it. So we've heard a lot about NFL cheerleaders dealing with a whole range of issues from eating disorders to unfair pay, harassment, discrimination. What made you want to look into the NBA? That was absolutely the impetus for this piece. Uh, and that post-it note that I mentioned uh, basically happened after I attended a game myself. I just happened to be seated where the dancers came out. This was the Golden State Warriors in particular. And I just felt curious about what are, what are their lives like? Is this a similar issue for them or is it, is it a better environment? One of the interesting things about your piece is you trace the history of teams employing dancers and what the point of them at these games is. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I think that's a big difference between the NFL and the NBA, that the dancers were really integral to the NBA becoming what it is today. So it dates back to the late 1970s with the then owner of the Lakers, Jerry Buss, who coined this term showtime that all sports buffs are aware of. and. Uh, the, that, the idea was to kind of make this entertainment as well as sports. So central to that were, were dancers. You spoke to a lot of women who talked about 
especially, you know, weight and like body image being a huge issue that they faced yeah. when they were NBA dancers. You had so many good anecdotes. One of them that was so heartbreaking was what you opened the piece with, which was a woman was forced to sit in the closet thinking about how she needed to lose weight. Mm -hmm. What was it like hearing those stories? Were there any other ones that really stuck out to you? Yeah, I mean, this culture is really normalized was the sad thing that I found, that uh, being a certain weight is a lot of thing, uh, is written in contracts, it's rules, it's, you know, their performance is contingent on being a certain weight. So uh, that particular anecdote involved Lauren Harrington from the Milwaukee Bucks, and yeah, her coach actually made her sit in a broom closet and contemplate if she was doing enough to lose weight. Um, I heard a lot of other women who would have to call their coaches while they were working out and say, I'm running on the treadmill on an empty stomach. Um, or you know, a lot of them who the night actually that they made it, made the team were pulled into a room and said, you're a great dancer, but you need to lose 10 pounds immediately. So that's sort of the culture that they're dealing with. Yeah, I also, one of the other anecdotes you had was that women made the team and then were given uniforms and the only options were two and four. Yeah. You know, and this woman says, oh, I'm a size six, which is a very normal size to be. Yeah. And, you know, they the only option they had was to get small enough to fit these outfits. It's just a horrible image in your mind. Mm -hmm. So obviously the NBA, all pro sports teams make huge sums of money. Do the dancers see any of this money? Absolutely not. Uh, it was really disappointing, actually, to hear how much they make. Uh, you see these stories with the NFL uh, making $75 to $100 a game. And in the NBA, what I found was that it's even less. Um, a lot of them mentioned making $50 a game. Uh, you know, these are teams in 2018, every NBA team is worth over a billion dollars. Um, and, you know, some of these women, after paying for required beauty routines like hair and tanning, are taking home as little as 3 to $4 an hour. That was one of the interesting things that you talked about was, you know, you say after these things, and that's kind of like, okay, yeah, like everyone needs to get their hair done. But no, these some of the women were told by the people, if you want to be on this team, you need to go get like hair extensions at this specific salon that costs $300, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, that's, that's a really tough thing. These are beauty routines that cost a ton of money. And then on a salary that's not even enough to make ends meet, it's, it's really impossible to sustain. So what can, say, if you're an NBA fan, mm -hmm. is there anything that NBA fans can do or things that players you think should be doing to stop this culture? Yeah. Or do you think this is something that's going to have to be litigated out? Yeah, I think that this is a, a complicated problem with an easy solution, and that is just to treat these dancers better. I mean, the statement that the NBA gave me as a whole was that dancers are valued members of the league, and if that's true, then I think they need to be treated that way. So I think fans can raise awareness by tweeting about it by, by asking their favorite players to, to raise awareness for these dancers. I mean, even just upping their salaries, a small amount would make such a huge difference. We were talking about girls who are working three jobs just to make ends meet and who are laughing at the idea that this would be a livable wage. And I think that, you know, for billion dollar teams, that's a drop in the bucket. Yeah, it seems like a very small thing to do. That would make a huge impact. Well, Abby, thank you so much for joining Thanks me. Thanks for having me. Thank you for your reporting. I would encourage everyone to read the story if you haven't already. And up next, we're reading your tweets. So that happened. Um, we have a tweet here from Kirsten Baptiste. Uh, you said, I think people just have to let well enough alone sometimes. Just say so-and-so made an ignorant statement and as a result stepped down from the position. That's that on that. Fair. Yeah. Sure. I mean, you know, and I saw someone else point this out on the timeline that, um, you know, not getting to host the Oscars is not a 
punishment. Like it's yeah, hundred percent. You know, it's, it's like a, a job opportunity. It's a punishment. Yeah, it's a job opportunity. You, do, you know, I know just by the facet of looking at my own tweets and hosting the show that there are many job opportunities that I will never be able to pursue. <laughs> um, and the other thing I thought was interesting talking to Kenneth, one, his, he was incredibly open. Um, his publicist actually called us yesterday and was like, "Yeah, he he wants to talk about that," and I appreciate that. He didn't have to come on the show. A lot of times, celebrities. 100%. Get into one of these moments on Twitter and then just like don't do interviews. So I appreciated him talking about it. Um, but also like he was like Kevin Hart's one of my best friends, and I was like, oh, okay, well that's that clearly is a major part of this conversation and and influences it, right? Like he he's there repping Kevin as his best friend, and I think that significantly impacts how he thinks about the conversation. Well, obviously you're going to be colored by your own personal relationships totally. with someone, but you totally. did a good job talking to him and. You know, we heard what he had to say. Challenging him and, yeah, giving him a, a way to talk. And, yeah. You know, also, his watch yeah. was covered in diamonds. It was incredible. Wait, really? I don't know if you saw it. was Every facet of it was covered in diamonds. I didn't see that. I'll see if I can, like, zero in on it. Anyway, <laughs> uh, <laughs> about our conversation with the Time Magazine photo editor, Paul Moakley, Tanya Melendez had this to say. Uh, I love that the Time Magazine Person of the Year selection is dual purpose, honoring these people and slamming 45. That's President Trump. Of course, anytime you honor the right people, you're slamming 45, but... Oh, okay. Ooh, a little shade there. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't even know. I, I mean, I, I guess it's kind of sad to say that honoring people who are being persecuted for doing journalism Killed. is slamming yeah. the president. I don't know. I don't That's know. a reality it's, that doesn't really ooh, sit well with yeah. me. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, I will say uh, for the people at the Gazette, uh, lost mm -hmm. their lives um, and their coworkers, um, and, and Jamal Khashoggi, I, I just, it's, I, I'm still struggling to wrap my head around uh, that, like, a journalist was brutally murdered. Uh, you know, he was being sawed while he was alive, according to that transcript. Mm -hmm. And and the way this is played out um, is it, it's very troubling. So I think any opportunity, you know, to to highlight Jamal Khashoggi and other imperiled journalists, I think is is pretty good. Just yeah, and obviously journalists um, are facing a lot of backlash here in the U.S. But I'd also like to point out that. There are people all over the world, which Time Magazine Ooh. also co also covers mm -hmm. and spoke to, yeah. who are facing extremely dangerous situations and are still going out and reporting. So if you don't know who these other people are, I'd encourage you to read about them and see you know, how we are lucky in the U.S. that we do have this freedom and we have to keep protecting it. Yeah. Uh, Pix Maven said around this conversation, imperiled journalists should not be a phrase we're familiar with, but... Oof. Yeah, it's true. And, and and that's such a good point. I mean, you know, Jamal Khashoggi, of course, rightfully is a name that I hope everyone is familiar with. But the truth is, you know, even let's use Turkey as an example, right? Like Turkey was pushing back on Saudi Arabia for the murder of Jamal Khashoggi. Uh, Turkey's government is notorious mm -hmm. for you know, endangering and, and harassing and imprisoning journalists. So it's like there's a lot of people who may not enter, you know, the international spotlight um, mm -hmm. because of their situation and not just journalists, writers as well. Um, so this is, I think, a learning opportunity to like learn about people we don't know about as much. 100%. Yeah. Um, well, we asked you about some of your favorite Twitter clapbacks. Uh, Janice dug up this classic clapback from Rihanna. Oh, because I'm black, bitch. I forgot about that. I wonder what I that's in, that? in response to. Now yeah, I need I to know. I honestly can't remember what it was about. I saw it in my mentions and I was like, what are we talking about? But no that idea. was, yeah. I also remember when like uh, Joan Rivers uh, tweeted about like wanting to slap Rihanna because this is when Rihanna was like kind of back and forth with Chris Brown. Oh, and she God, was like, why don't, don't you go slap that. on some diapers? <laughs> <I was like>, <laughs> <laughs> Rihanna's been out here for a while. <sighs> a lot of clapbacks from her. All right. <laughs> 
Well, I don't even know what to say about <laughs> Don't mess with Rihanna. Well, you don't want it. And thank you to our guests, Errol Lewis, Blake Montgomery, Paul Moakley, Sandra Villa, Nick Cannon, Stan Romanoff, and Abby Haglidge. Thank you all for joining us. Isaac will be back from LA where he has just been having a great time. He's back tomorrow, 10 a.m. We'll see you then. It's Wednesday. Oh God, the holiday party's tomorrow. Fun. Shit. <laughs> <laughs>